Brothers and sisters, as you well know, one of the core beliefs of a Christian is that God himself dwells in the Christian. The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, lives in the hearts of Christians or in in their spirit, so to speak, moves them to believe and become more and more holy. We all affirm this as Christians and we see it as a good thing. But even though we know this must be a good thing because the Bible says so, I wonder if we fully understand what it means. What does the Holy Spirit do? What is the difference, for example, between someone who has the Holy Spirit and someone who does not? And do you live differently if you have the Spirit or not? Perhaps this is all just theology anyway. And often there's another question lurking under behind those questions. The question is, aren't we saved by Jesus Christ and through his blood, and isn't that really what counts? Why do we need to talk about the Holy Spirit? What does he really do anyway? Well, perhaps there's suspicion. You know, we've heard of Pentecostal churches and spiritual gifts, speaking in tongues, prophecy, this sort of ecstatic t- style of worship. And I think many of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we alternate between suspicion of that and a sort of envy, perhaps, too, of the experience of that. And today we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. Because here in, our, in a passage that we're really going to use strongly today, John 15, Jesus spends significant time talking about the Holy Spirit. And Jesus shows us how important the Holy Spirit is, and he challenges a lot of preconceptions about what the Holy Spirit is doing and who he is. So bear with me as we look at this under this theme, the testimony of the Holy Spirit, and we'll start with testifying about Jesus. We'll start with some a little bit of context. Where are we orientated in this passage? Remember, this is John 15 and then on to John 16. This part of the Gospel of John starts in chapter 13 and it goes to chapter 17. And this part of John is Jesus' last teaching before the disciples, um, or before he goes to the cross. In the previous verses of John 15, Jesus talks about the vine, where every Christian is part of the vine. And then he talks about how the world is going to hate Christians. It's going to hate Jesus' followers. It's going to hate Jesus' disciples. It's a strong word that he uses. Now, from our perspective, the world is not such a big deal if Jesus is with you. But Jesus told his disciples in the previous passage that he's leaving. He is not going to stay in the world. The question then becomes, how on earth are we going to stand against the hatred of the world without Jesus being on earth? It does seem hopeless, especially to the disciples. And Jesus deals with this concern, especially in our passage as we start in chapter 26, where so he says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, 
He will bear witness about me. The Holy Spirit is going to be a critical piece in how we stand up against the hatred of the world. Some things we need to know right away. First of all, who is the Holy Spirit in basic terms? Third person of the Trinity. He's a person, not a force. The Bible speaks of him, the Holy Spirit, as a he. He's not like the force in Star Wars. He's a he, he's a person, he's a personality. He is often understood as exerting the power, authority, and presence of God in the world. When the world was created, the Father spoke. He spoke through the Son, and the Spirit affected the creation. He made it happen, we could say. Secondly, we see in this verse that the Spirit is sent from the Father, but also from the Son, too, it would seem. Here's a history note. You may not find this relevant, but it's actually hugely important. This verse is at the root of the division between what we call the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church. There used to be one church in the Roman Empire. Now, and over history, two came. Why? Why did the churches split? Well, it's because they had an argument. The argument, well, one of the reasons anyway, there were more, but one of the reasons is because of this verse. The Roman Catholic Church argues that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Son and the Father. The Eastern Orthodox says, no, he proceeds only from the Father. Now, I think most of you are expecting me to then explain why that matters, but it's not the point of the sermon today. I, I, I'm not gonna, it's somewhat complex as to how, why that makes a difference, but you should know as we read this text that, that this is the history there. Maybe another day we can explain why that matters. Number three, the Spirit is called the Advocate. Why? Advocate. Now, in an earlier sermon in this sermon series on John, I argued that the advocate here is like a person who, if you've ever known a relative who goes to the hospital, and maybe they're in the hospital for a significant period of time, typically the spouse of whoever's in the hospital acts as their advocate. The person who's sick is not well enough to be able to push the doctors often to get all the tests and the medications and stuff that the person needs. So often the spouse becomes a real advocate. They, they advocate on behalf of the person who's sick to try to get them the best medical care that they can get. This is sort of the best way to explain how the Spirit acts as an advocate when he lives in you. Now, and the more is said about that earlier in John, but the point here is Jesus says, the advocate is going to come after I die, and he's going to testify. That's the word, or in the ESV, it's bear witness. But we could say testify, we could say witness. Both those words work. What does it mean to bear witness? It's courtroom language. The Holy Spirit is a, a witness. He's, he's, got a, he's talking, he's affirming some truth that, that's happened. Let me use an example. I once had to testify at a trial. I had been mowing grass for the city of Surrey in BC. I saw a little boy get hit by a car after a school day. The kid crossed the road, and it wasn't a school zone, and the driver was driving at a high rate of speed. Thankfully, the boy survived and is fine, but the police came. Everything became evidence for a court case, and I was a primary witness. 
Months later, I had to testify in court. Now, when we speak about things in court, the first thing you need to realize is that your testimony in a courtroom is life and death. When we talk about testifying, witnessing, we are not talking about, I saw a car drive by at a somewhat high rate of speed. On a regular, it's not a regular truth. It's a, it's a truth that matters. And if you're going to testify in court, you have to be honest and remember exactly what you saw. But there's a few problems with testimony. Number one, a couple months later, I wasn't entirely sure what I saw. I thought I saw X, but in reality, I wondered whether I really saw what I thought of. How fast was the car going? 40, 50, 60, 70? I wasn't sure. And secondly, the life and death nature of the situation nearly paralyzed me. How could I be responsible for the sentence on the offender if I was not 100% sure in my testimony? And so we have, here we have a situation where Jesus says, the Spirit is going to testify about me. Why? Why does the Spirit need to testify about me? Because if you read the next line, verse 27, it says, he says to the disciples, you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. And so we would assume that the disciples are going to bear witness about Jesus. The disciples are going to, they wrote, the Gospel of John is written by one of the disciples. So we would expect that there should be enough witness, testimony, just with the disciples and what they saw. But Jesus says, no, the Holy Spirit is going to come. He's going to testify. The truth is that the, the disciples would not be able to remember everything that they saw. They're not strong enough. Their memory is not perfect. So the Holy Spirit is going to be given to them to ensure that they remember. So the truth of Jesus is not lost even after he dies. It's hard to overestimate how important this truth is. This truth is actually extremely important when you talk to Muslims. If you don't have a rock-solid understanding of this truth, you're... Don't even bother talking to a Muslim about Christianity. The question you need to ask them is, can you trust the Quran and how do you know? And if only humans carried this truth, I don't trust it. If you look back at the history of the Quran, it is not encouraging. Many different, many different radically different versions exist, but not so with the Bible. The Bible, there's something like 5,000 manuscripts, and they all align to something like 98.9% accuracy. Why? Why is it that you have four Gospels, and they generally line up on almost every single major truth? Who did that? The Holy Spirit did it. And what's more, the Holy Spirit doesn't just testify in helping the disciples tell the truth. The Holy Spirit is more than that. We often don't think about the fact that the Holy Spirit walked with Jesus throughout his ministry. Remember, Matthew 3, verse 16. 
Jesus is baptized. And what happens at Jesus' baptism? As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. It says, alighting on Jesus. And immediately after Jesus receives the Holy Spirit, he's then driven into the desert by the Spirit. Here's an interesting fact. Hebrews says that Jesus was like us in every single way. And it may well have been the case that his miracles were done by the Spirit's power. We don't know that for sure, but the fact that Jesus lived as an ordinary man shows us that the Holy Spirit had a bigger role in his ministry than many of us would expect. And so not only does the Holy Spirit ensure that we tell the truth and that the disciples tell the truth, the Holy Spirit actually was with Jesus when he did the things of his life. Now, this whole concept of testimony in the Holy Spirit has a couple of implications for how we live. Number one, we would assume, given our culture, that having the Holy Spirit should lead to ecstatic emotions and prophecy and all sorts of weird phenomena. But here we see that the Holy Spirit's presence does not have to do with emotion or spiritual, charismatic, all this stuff. The Holy Spirit's major role is to ensure that you believe the truth. I need to think about that for a second. Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead and that the Bible is an accurate reflection of what actually happened? And if you say yes, then the Holy Spirit is present. Do I have the Holy Spirit? How do I know that I have the Holy Spirit? The answer is not, have I had some wonderful experience that has shown me the Spirit? The answer is, do I believe what the Bible says? So the Bible is the Holy Spirit's testimony of the truth. Now, in Brampton, this is very radical, because many people are Pentecostal in thinking, even if they don't go to a Pentecostal church. And they think that you need some sort of magnificent experience or emotional experience in order to have proof that the Holy Spirit is in you. It is nonsense. Secondly, this also helps us identify the work of the Holy Spirit versus the work of spirits that are not from God. Another very important thing. 1 John 4 verse 2 says this, Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. So where is the Holy Spirit present in this world, do you think? He is present wherever Jesus is preached faithfully. He is not present in places that ignore Jesus, don't talk about Jesus, damage the truth about Jesus, and have no interest in Jesus. 
And what do you think one of Satan's strategies would be in this situation? Satan will give people religious experiences that don't include Jesus. Lots of feeling, lots of music, lots of noise, but nobody opens a Bible and nobody talks about Jesus Christ. That is something that Satan wants to do. Primary evidence of the Holy Spirit is Jesus Christ preached boldly. Does he live in the minds and hearts of the people? Do you know him? Do you trust that he did what he said the Bible says he did? That is how you know the Holy Spirit is at work. Shouldn't be radical, but it is in our world. Now, number two, let's go to point two, testifying about the world. The Spirit doesn't just testify about Jesus, it testifies about the character of the world. And so Jesus moves on to chapter 16 here, and Jesus returns in chapter 16 to the challenges of persecution that the disciples are going to face, and about how the world is going to be hostile. He says here, I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away, disciples. I'm warning you about the hate of the world because I don't want you to fall. Again, the greatest risk to the Christian is not the world. The greatest risk of the Christian is that he will deny his faith. So Jesus says, I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. He's not said, he's not saying, listen, I'm saying these things to you because I think the world is so dangerous it might get you. That's not really the point. The point is don't fall away. Don't let it actually get to you. Apostasy is the greatest risk we face. When you abandon your faith, you stop asking for Jesus to protect you. You run away from the only protection you might ever have in this world and you become open prey. The most dangerous thing a Christian can do is abandon Christ. Now, Jesus warns us about persecution. He says, they will put you out of the synagogues. Most of the the disciples are Jewish. And for Jewish people, before Jesus came, synagogue was church. And now their churches, so to speak, of the Jews, are going to remove people who follow Jesus. Maybe we could apply this to today. People who hate Jesus will kick Christians out of churches. Often that's true. Those who stand for the truth are removed from the religious bodies that they might be a part of. You can see in liberal churches and such that abandon the faith, and often the true members eventually get kicked out. It's an old pattern. A pattern that goes right back to the beginning. Now, he moves on. Indeed, an hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. They will do such things. They will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. Listen, if any person uses violence to defend or promote the kingdom of God, they by that, therefore, show themselves to not be from God. Whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. But 
Who are such people? Who, do, who does things like that? They, they have not known the Father nor me. It's a very important lesson. If you think you need to lift a sword to defend the Christian faith, you have already lost it. You never had it. Now, let's keep going. People will, people will be murdered. This is a character of the devil. That's what he does. Number four, or on to verse 4. But I have said these things to you, that when the, their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. Jesus' point is simple. I'm telling you these things so that you know that I'm in control, that I know the future, and I'm, I'm, I'm bigger than it. You don't have to worry because I can see it coming. It's not outside my plan that this is going to occur. And then he moves on again. Verse 5, But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, Where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. In other words, the disciples are grieving because Jesus has said that he's leaving. And Jesus is saying, that is the wrong reaction. Don't grieve that I'm leaving. I'm leaving for good reason. You should be asking me where I'm going. What am I about? You should be asking me, what, I'm, what am I about to do? Because that's the big thing here. Don't grieve my loss. I'm coming back, essentially. The disciples don't like the talk of hate and persecution. They're puzzled by this whole idea that the world will hate them and Jesus will be gone and he won't be there to protect them. Jesus is saying, you need to think about where I'm going. I'm going to heaven ultimately to be with the Father. And that's a place where I'm going to bring you. And that's the thing you ought to focus your energy on. But anyway, I've moved through this section fast because this is a sermon about the Holy Spirit. And now in verse 7... Jesus returns to the Holy Spirit again. He says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Again, very confusing. Why is it... Why does Jesus have to leave or die on the cross in order to have the Holy Spirit come? Why can't the Holy Spirit come and Jesus stays? Doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? There's a couple of answers to this question in their what I call high theology. I'm going to give you the best I've got. It's not perfect. But four, four things I want to say here. Jesus is leaving. And he, his part of his leaving is he dies first, and he rises from the dead, and then he ascends into heaven. There's this leaving process. And part of leaving is dying. He has to die on the cross. That's the thing he's really come to do. The Holy Spirit cannot come unless Jesus dies. Jesus' death is the ground for your salvation. If Jesus doesn't die in your behalf, you cannot be received as righteous before God because Jesus died to pay the penalty for sin that you should have paid. God cannot inhabit your heart if somebody hasn't paid for the sin that you've committed. And so the Holy, 
Holy Spirit coming is part of and, and consequence of the death of Jesus Christ. Number two, Jesus' work is incomplete until he returns to the Father in heaven. When Jesus lives on earth, he diminishes himself. That's Philippians 2. He humbles himself to become an ordinary man, and by so doing, he loses or or suspends, in in essence, his full glory. Think about who Jesus is in heaven for a second. You can read it in Revelation 1. The transfiguration is another picture of it. Jesus and God and the Father are so great that they radiate this magnificence. That's glory. When Jesus comes to earth, his magnificence is diminished because if it's not, it would kill us all. We cannot stand in the full glory of God because we would die. Because we're sinful. So Jesus has to return to heaven to receive and be the fullness of who he is. And we want that because if Jesus is the fullness of who he is, we will receive more benefits from him. You don't want, do we want Jesus to remain diminished? No, we don't. Now, number three. It is better that we have the Holy Spirit, the the spiritual presence of God, than Jesus' physical presence. Even though Jesus is God, he has a different uh, task than the Holy Spirit. There's a sense in which Jesus' task, strictly speaking, is not to be the power of God in our souls. That's the Spirit's task. Now, Jesus is so closely tied to the Spirit that he, in effect, lives in our hearts with the Spirit. But that's not, strictly speaking, what his task really is. But it is the Spirit's task to live in your heart and to move your heart and to be the power of God in your life. And better the Spirit be in his fullness in our lives, then Jesus as a human being located in one location on the earth and walking around like a human being. The Spirit is everywhere in in a way that Jesus wouldn't be if he was really on earth. Number three, number two, or number four, sorry. At the end of time, we will have both. the end of time, we will have the presence of Jesus on earth and the Holy Spirit in fullness in heaven, or on the new earth. There is a time coming when we will have both, but it's not yet. The Holy Spirit is said to be a down payment of that. In the meantime, Jesus is in heaven ruling over this earth, defeating sin by fighting Satan. Well, Satan's bound, but working to move his kingdom through the earth. Again, it's high theology. I'm not sure if it's as applicable as we would always like our sermons to be. But I hope I've drawn you into some of the, the immensity of what, who God is and what he's doing. Perhaps 
just by knowing this, we can worship God evermore. Now, what's perhaps a little more practical for our sermon today is what Jesus says next in verses 8 through 11. In verse 8, Jesus says, When he, the Spirit, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So the the Spirit is going to convict the world about its sin. The Spirit is going to do three in three ways, right? So about sin, it says, because concerning sin, it says in the ESV, because they do not believe in me. So the Holy Spirit will show human beings that they are sinful and in need of a Savior that they must believe in. Number one. Number two, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Right? So Jesus is a perfectly righteous human being on earth. He is the righteousness of God embodied in a human form. And when he leaves, there's going to be no true witness to the righteousness of God other than in the Bible. But the Spirit will remind the world of who it is who was righteous and what righteousness is. That's what the Spirit will do. Finally, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. The Holy Spirit will tell the world about the fate of the devil and those who follow him. The judgment is coming and that the devil has been defeated. If you seek to follow him, so will you. The world will be convicted. The truth will win. Now this raises some practical questions for you and I, doesn't it? The Holy Spirit convicts the world about these things. What would the Holy Spirit be doing in your life? Remember, you and I are said to be separate from the world, but the sad part about most Christians is that the, the lives, our lives are kind of filled with the patterns of the world more than we would like to admit. And so if we're tempted to live according to the patterns of the world, what would the Holy Spirit do in your life? Number one, the Holy Spirit is going to convict you of your sin. Just as the sin of people who are not Christian will be exposed, so sin the sin of Christians will be exposed. you will see that your sin, so a mark of the Spirit in your life is that you have a greater awareness of your sin. And therefore, your need for Jesus. You cannot tell me that you are a powerful spiritual person, a mature Christian, and not have anything to say about your sin. I get very suspicious when people tell me that they have nothing to repent of. This is a classic, classic situation. You meet someone in the neighborhood in Brampton, and what's the first thing out of their mouth? I'm a good person. And in that breath, I think to myself, and you're not a Christian. Because that is not what you would have said if you were a Christian. How do I tell as a pastor, as a missionary, who in my neighborhood might know Jesus or might be moving towards Jesus and who does not? This is the number one question I want to ask. Hey, do you believe you're sinful? Do you believe that you have, or even, do you believe that you make mistakes? 
Are you a good person? And the higher someone's view of themselves, the less spiritual they therefore must be. I'm always thrilled when someone comes and they say, man, I, I just can't believe, uh, I think I'm a sinner. Or they say, oh, you know, I, I, you know I'm, just, I'm doing this thing in my life and it's just so wrong. That's when I get my hopes up. That's when your pastor probably gets his hopes up too. If, you're, if you've never confessed a sin to someone else in this church, you are in very big trouble. You may not be spiritual. Because a mark of spirituality in your life is that you will be more and more clear-eyed by how rotten your sin is. The mark of a Christian is not that he or she is sinless, but that he or she knows that he or she is a sinner and in desperate need of the grace of God. Now, here's a small digression, if you'll allow me. This is why it is so subtle and deadly for Christians or pastors or churches to think that church should only be encouraging and positive. Now, no doubt the gospel is incredibly encouraging and positive. But usually, at first, the gospel is like war in my soul. And it's usually the harder the gospel hits you and the more painful it hits you, is usually the better off you will be and the more joyful joy you will experience in the future. It must convict sin in a church, and it's not always pretty. Often the beauty of the gospel is most evident as we face our sin and depravity and see Jesus in it. Then the true joy of Jesus begins to appear. Now, number two. The Holy Spirit is busy convicting us and the world of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This has two effects. As the Spirit works in the life of a Christian or anyone else, Jesus becomes held higher and higher and higher in that person's life. The gap between the righteousness of Jesus and our righteousness widens. This is inevitable in the maturity of a Christian. Now you might say, well, is it really to my advantage to see Jesus as being more and more righteousness? Doesn't that make me feel worse and worse? No. Because the more righteous Jesus is and the more sinful I am, the gap between the, the widening gap is filled with the cross. This is the purpose of the cross, is to show you that even though Jesus is more righteousness than you could ever imagine, you are more saved than you could ever imagine. Because the cross means that the gap between his righteousness and yours is forgiven. And it means that his righteousness stands in your place at the judgment seat of God so that you look as perfectly righteous as him, even though you are not. Because Jesus gives you his righteousness as a gift. That's what the cross accomplishes. So you want to be convicted so that you run to Jesus and his righteousness. Of course, this brings us to the third thing, judgment. 
The Holy Spirit convicts the world and us of the coming judgment, especially the devil's on incoming end and demise. Wherever the Holy Spirit is at work, judgment is acknowledged. God is holy and righteous, and he will judge a humanity that is not. And you need to reckon with that, and the Spirit won't let you ignore it. But again, the gospel is that the righteousness of Jesus Christ is offered to you so that you can stand before the righteous judgment seat of God as righteous, blameless, and without spot. Your only hope is to run to Jesus and cling to him. Don't you see that? And that is what this Holy Spirit is trying to teach you in every single interaction, every moment of his existence. That is what he is trying to teach you. That's why it says the Holy Spirit testifies and bears witness about Jesus. That is what he does. He doesn't, his job isn't to give you prophecies or, or speaking in tongues. That's not the primary purpose of the Holy Spirit. It's happened. But you don't need that stuff if you know Christ. And that is the testimony of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit ensures that, yes, the Reformed faith, I would even say, is taught in this church and passed down from generation to generation and that the truth is not lost. That is what he is doing. And we are all the beneficiaries of that today, right now, not just because of what our parents came from, but because what was just preached is evidence that the Spirit is at work. Because when the Spirit is not at work, Jesus is not taught. Or if he is, he's mixed in with all sorts of nonsense. And so despite popular opinion, the Holy Spirit today has been more active than most of you might have imagined. Depends on whether you accepted Jesus or not. So, brothers and sisters, pray for the Holy Spirit that he may drive you towards Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us sing in response.